0: Hey y'all, Sam here. So as 2020 comes to a close, I have been thinking a lot about all the things that helped me get through this crazy year. Chocolate covered almonds, shorts and pants with elastic waistbands, Netflix, countless pints of ice cream. But when I really think about it, one of the things that I absolutely could not have survived 2020 without is public radio. Every day this year, Through the protests and the pandemic and the recession, I have listened to an NPR podcast or an NPR member station, or I have watched a Tiny Desk concert. So I give to multiple NPR member stations because I want public radio to be around next year as well. Listeners, I am asking you right now to give to the NPR member station of your choosing, because I bet that you relied on public radio a lot in 2020, just like me. When you give to your NPR member station, that support flows through the entire public radio system to keep all of us, including this little old show, on the air. So go right now to this link, donate.npr.org Sam, and we will get through the rest of this year and 2021 together. Thank you. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So this week and next week, we are stepping back to take in this dumpster fire of a year in all of its dumpster fire glory and take stock of how the pandemic has affected everything, including the things that we created, consumed, and enjoyed throughout 2020. And y'all, it's more than just Netflix, trust me. You know, so many of us were stuck at home for much of this year. But that did not mean that the culture, capital C, came to a complete standstill. If anything, a strange kind of internet culture flourished in its own weird way. And it came to reflect the horror and the absurdity of this year.
1: I think it's this digital hellscape that we all sort of entered in 2020. Uh, My first guest this episode,
0: he calls the phenomenon quarantine culture. And he says quarantine culture might have started way back on March 11th, when the whole country was just on the cusp of a nationwide shutdown. And where else would quarantine culture start but on The View?
1: Whoopi Goldberg, you know, is she's at her usual uh, seat at the head of the table at The View. And she says, uh, Welcome to The View, y'all. And then she just keeps saying welcome to the view, welcome to the view, welcome to the view, welcome to the view, like over and over again. And the camera just pans around to empty chairs in the studio audience.
0: <laughs> no one was there. No one was there.
1: <laughs> Nobody was there. Not a single
0: soul. <laughs> that is E. Alex Jung. He's a writer at New York Magazine. He recently wrote a story all about quarantine, or core culture.
1: You know, I think a lot of the seeds of core culture were planted way before quarantine, which is, I think, the same thing that you could say about the pandemic or the current state of our political institutions, too. And so I think all that quarantine did was it sort of compressed and heightened that feeling and that kind of culture of how we were experiencing the Internet and how the Internet was creating this kind of Collectivist for lack of a better word, art making.
0: What are the other, I guess, components or characteristics of Alex's core culture?
1: It's partially this feeling of everything feeling kind of broken, including yourself. <laughs> right? Okay. Like your your brain is a little broken. Everyone else's brain is a little broken. It's maybe a little grief-stricken too, right? So I think there's a kind of coping mechanism aspect to all of it. But it's like this sense that everything is absurd, that nothing makes sense, that the adults have left the room, uh, the house is on fire, and, and no one is reacting, apparently. And so we're all just like watching this catastrophe happen and unfold in real time. And we're sort of trying to process it, right? And I think the way that we process it is through this digital... Like, I think the, the language of the internet has always skewed towards comedy, surrealism, absurdism. And so all of those things have just been really amped up in quarantine.
0: Okay, give me the top three examples of internet quarantine culture in
1: 2020. Oh, wow. Um...
0: I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you what to say is your top three, but I kind of want you to just unpack the whole raven Simone crying while eating peanut butter jelly thing because that is like peak core culture.
1: <laughs> okay, um, so Raven was in the... Cheetah Girls, and also in That's So Raven on Disney. Yes, um, she's a child mm-hmm. star, and she and one of her co-stars uh, from the Cheetah Girls, Kylie Williams, uh, they're, they're they're sort of like supposed to be addressing this like long-standing beef that they have, right, through an Instagram and, live. Yeah, on on her right. Instagram live.
2: Okay, um, Kylie, what?
1: <laughs> the conversation ends. It seems fine, right? Whatever. The camera is just continuing to record Raven and she's eating a sandwich. She kind of like rolls it up. And then she just starts laughing to herself like While it's like this... the sandwich looking at <laughs> I don't know what. And it's kind of like a little maniacal, a little like a, you know, a touch of evil perhaps. <laughs> so then this tail end
0: of an Instagram live of a former child Disney star right. takes off on the internet and becomes its own meme. So people right. take this footage of raven Simone, child star laughing on Instagram while eating peanut butter and jelly and begin to use it in all kinds of funny, weird ways online. And ultimately, someone sets it to music
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, a very famous clip of classical music, Mozart's Unfinished Requiem in D minor. And so, like, that little, whatever, 20-second clip of her laughing to herself gets shortened by another user. The backing track is added um, of Mozart. And then it just, like, takes this really perfect platonic quality to it. Whatever that feeling is, is like perfectly captured in that little moment, right? So everything kind of gets dissected and broken up and changed and manipulated and turned into a text that you can use, which I think is really fascinating about memes.
0: So then when you write about quarantine culture and the ascendance of memes like that, you point out that it's also kind of a business story, you know? the Raven Simone laughing meme set the classical music did not come from Netflix, did not come from any major studio. It came from the internet. And 2020 and quarantine culture in many ways proved that the old gatekeepers of entertainment are losing control of the culture. You know, you point out these examples of I guess old school entertainment culture feeling really dated this year. You know, that video of Tom Cruise going by himself to see Tenet in a theater this summer. It's like, ugh, that doesn't work now. Or, like, even these big networks trying to release television seasons all about COVID, most of them fell flat. The fact that, like, TikTok won when Quibi did not is a story of quarantine culture, also just really the story of the old establishment becoming less relevant when it comes to entertainment.
1: Right, right. And I think that something that was really funny is that, you know, Tom Cruise doing that promotional video of, like, go watch Tenet and, like, him, like, grinning his Tom Cruise grin and being like, I love the movies or back to the movies.
0: Back to the movies.
1: Like, that part does feel quarantine culture because it's, like, out of touch and weird and funny, (laughs) right? Like you watch that and you're like, you're thinking, what are you doing? That's the core brain, core culture aspect of it is that, you know, like these extremely famous, powerful people are incredibly out of touch. Right now they sort of don't get to dictate the terms of their portrayal in some ways
0: yeah so then if we're seeing this year especially in pandemic where there are these ascendant social platforms tiktok twitch youtube instagram that are creating the culture that feels the most of this year does that mean that we're entering a reality even post-pandemic that's a little bit more egalitarian, that's a little bit less controlled by the traditional Hollywood players, or do we or do we all revert to form once the vaccine hits?
1: That's a great question. I do not know
0: um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know i I do feel like this has permanently changed us mm. um i I'm not really sure like what that means uh I know that. What we're doing is creating free content for tech companies, though.
0: Yeah, this is what I can't make sense of when I am thinking about core culture as you define it. Like, on its face, it's a little weird, it's a little sad, it's a lot absurd, and it seems to just creep out of the concrete of the Internet and just appears out of nowhere, which seems cool, you know? But also, like you said, like... These places that seem egalitarian, where anyone can make a TikTok or anyone can go on Twitch and play right next to AOC, where anyone can make a YouTube video or Instagram. It's still all feeding these large corporations controlled by very powerful rich men. And all those things work on algorithms. Like, it's still controlled by a computer. Is, should I be sad about that or just say, that's showbiz, baby? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, no. I think you can do both. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that sadness mixed with cynicism and disillusionment is part of that attitude. Like you know, when people were so surprised about like K-pop stands disrupting the Dallas PD snitch cam. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like they were so surprised that like this group would be politically active and and mobilize to sort of. Uh, mess up, you know, Trump's Tulsa rally or whatever. But it's like, have you ever been to a K-pop concert? You know, <laughs> like they're mostly women. They're mostly women of color. Uh, they're queer people. They're young. They're incredibly online, and they are more likely to have kind of like leftist views. So of course they're going to do all of this. Like I think that is something that kind of political activism that happens online that will only continue after we get out of or if we get out of quarantine.
0: Yeah. You know, what I loved most about your essay was that you compared this cultural moment, this moment of quarantine culture where absurdist art is flourishing everywhere. You compare it to the aftermath of World War One. Mm-hmm. Explain mm-hmm. that for our listeners.
1: Yeah. Uh well I was I was trying to think You know, grapple with this idea of absurdist art. And of course, the one that leapt to mind most specifically was Dada. Mm. Like, Dada emerged among expats in Zurich and they were fed up. They were like, the bourgeoisie and the establishment are so messed up. They've gotten us into this world war. There's also, you know, the 1918 pandemic that comes via US soldiers to World War One, So there's literally a war happening on the continent, an outbreak of a flu that's killing people. And these artists are like, what, what the yeah. F is going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they wanted to create an artistic movement that would reflect that absurdism. And I think that that's, that to me is very much what quarantine culture is, right? It's this reaction to the deterioration of our social institutions. And kind of throwing up a middle finger to them and laughing at them.
0: You know what I find interesting though when we compare this moment of absurd, almost Dadaist art to the Dada era, you know, about a hundred mm. years ago. Mm-hmm. With Dada back then you could point out the artists that spearheaded it. Oh, that one, that one. You could name them. With this era of absurd quarantine culture and art that seems to come out of every corner of the internet, it's harder to do, to give credit where it's due. Like, who first made the meme? Do we, you know, the woman who is the star of the You About to Lose Your Job song? Right. No one knows her name. Is right. there a problem when a quarantine culture is created throughout all of the internet in giving credit?
1: Uh, That is a great question. I mean, the interesting thing is that I think that this is a more Dadaist moment in the sense that it is more egalitarian, right? Like in the sense that Dada, the Dadaists always wanted everyone to be a Dadaist. Uh, There was this kind of like real populist mentality was that like Dada was a sensibility um, that anybody could do. And that is kind of like an organic, like the internet has allowed for an organic manifestation of data. The bad part of that is that it becomes kind of authorless in that sense. And yeah. it's more of this like mass of everybody participating, changing, shifting. You know, a meme is, isn't just a moment. It's everyone iterating on that thing over and over and over and over and over again, right? Until it's like even more absurd than it was when it first started, yeah what's been your personal favorite moment of quarantine culture this year huh. your personal pick i I mean to me it's like if i'm trying to like specifically pick one thing like the the <laughs> Like, there are things that just make me laugh really, really hard. And one of those is uh, the Quibi show uh, starring Rachel Brosnahan. Oh, that's a classic. And she has a golden arm. (laughs) And she's dying of gold poisoning. I
0: can't take off my golden arm. Ever. (laughs) And yet she keeps the arm on.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and her dying wish is that she's buried with her golden
0: arm. (laughs) (laughs) I die. Bury me with my golden arm. But then because quarantine culture, the better show to come out of this whole thing is the show where a guy hate watches the Rachel Brosnahan with the Golden arm show. I will
2: bury you with your
1: golden arm. <laughs> I don't it's think so he was better. hate watching it. I think he, he was really it. enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> because I watched it uh-huh. and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs>
0: Coming up, we play my favorite game, Who Said That? With E. Alex Jung.
1: support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Comedy Central and their podcast, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Whether you've watched The Daily Show for years or you're tuning in for the first time, dive into today's news ears first. You can revisit your favorite interviews, hear exclusive extras, or listen to full episodes. As always, you'll hear from Trevor and the correspondents on the biggest news stories of today. Listen to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pandora. The holidays may feel a little different this year, but they sound better than ever. Holiday Hits Radio on Pandora can be your soundtrack to new memories with modes for every mood. From Mistletoe Duets mode for singing along, to buy the Fire mode for wrapping presents, to Holiday Party mode to get things started.
2: Hear more at pandora.com slash holiday. Abigail Disney says if she ran the family company, she'd deal with the current economic crisis very differently. A CEO should be like a ship's captain. You know, if other people are drowning, you're the last one off the ship. Ideas about the history and future of finding financial stability. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host Sam Sanders. Joined this weekend by New York Magazine writer E Alex Jung. Alex, are you ready to play a most low stakes game?
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're the first person who's actually said no, they don't want to play.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm ready to do it,
0: but I am terrible at games. <laughs> this game is quite simple. It's called Who Said That?
2: Ooh, hey, hey, hey. Hey. Hey, who said that?
0: I'm going to share three quotes from the week of news and pop culture. Okay. And you just guess who said it. Okay. And no matter what, you're going to win because you're the only one playing. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm so glad that I have no competition. <laughs> None whatsoever. All right. Here's the first quote. For many, we were there for a lot of your firsts. First baby, first day of school, first day of college, first job, first home. And while it is time to say goodbye to the catalog... We are excited to embark on our next journey that will be filled with new firsts. What big corporation announced this week that they're ending publication of their iconic catalog?
1: I have no idea. They've got great meatballs in the food court. BP. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. So it must be Ikea. It is Ikea,
0: yes. That quote comes from Conrad Groose. He is the managing director of Inter IKEA Systems, the parent company of Ikea. And he was breaking the news this week that Ikea is discontinuing the Ikea catalog. This is what's so weird. When I saw this news, I realized, I don't think I've ever held an Ikea catalog in my hand, but I was sad seeing this headline. <laughs> Why do I feel that way?
1: Uh, like nostalgia is the emotional lure of capitalism. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving your optimism this episode. <laughs> but I'm laughing
0: about it, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a point. Here's the next quote: We have had a clear priority, and this is to introduce sports which are particularly popular among the younger generations, and also to take into account the urbanization
1: of sport. Is it like EA eSports?
0: The most prestigious athletic competition in the world. FIFA? They light a torch when they Oh, they, the Olympics. The... <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Olympics. So that quote comes from Thomas Bach. Uh, He is the International Olympic Committee president. He was announcing that breakdancing, or as they call it, breaking, is going to be included in the 2024 Paris Olympic Games. How do you feel
1: about that? I feel like Olympics are really about, like, someone doing something incredibly physical that I absolutely could not do. And breakdancing 100% fulfills that, so...
0: (laughs) All I know is I won't be satisfied until there is an Olympic sport category for the dudes on the New York subway who yell out, (laughs) What time is it? It's showtime. Showtime. (laughs) You know what? Maybe that'll happen in, like, 2040. I mean, let's be real. Those are true athletes. Yeah. All right, you got two points. Here's the last quote. I have to always stay ready. Street ready, I always say. I have to keep my makeup on and keep my hair done. Like, when I'm in L.A., I've told you about it. If it's going to earthquake, if we get an earthquake, I'm not running out in the street looking like you look now. Who said that?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. This quote comes from a celebrity who is beloved on both sides of the political aisle.
1: Oh, Dolly Parton.
0: Dolly Parton. Uh, she was talking to RuPaul in an interview for Marie Claire magazine. Mm. So what I think happened, Alex, is that during this Zoom interview, Dolly Parton kind of shaded RuPaul, I guess, for not being in full makeup. (laughs) I wonder, like, how long will Dolly Parton be on top of the world?
1: Like, I I think she doesn't give you enough, right? You just sort of get just enough to kind of, like, love the image. And I think that that is, like, Mm -hmm. what is so brilliant about her. She's
0: Um, everywhere, but we never hear anything about her that she doesn't want us to hear. Right, exactly. Okay, last question for you. Yeah. What is the first piece of real life culture you're going to enjoy once a vaccine hits and we're allowed to go back to movies or
1: concerts again? I want to go to a dance party and I want there to be like drag performers. That is a thing that I really would love to do.
0: Yeah. I want to go to a block party mm. where they just play
1: the latest Dua Lipa album on loop the whole night. <laughs>
0: Because we should have been dancing to that thing in the streets all year, but coronavirus ruined that.
1: Yeah, instead we were in our rooms. Yeah, dancing alone to a Lipa. Now that's core culture. Yeah,
0: it is. <laughs> well, um, Alex, you won the game. Uh, I feel like I didn't, but I really appreciate your <laughs> helping me through all of those questions. Listen, everyone's a winner on It's Been a Minute. Well, Alex, thank you so much for playing the game and for helping explain... The weirdness of 2020, at least how it played out online. I appreciate you.
1: No, I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
0: Listeners, coming up, my next guest offers a takedown of a new Netflix series all about Selena.
1: Hey there, I'm Andrea Gutierrez. I'm a producer on It's Been a Minute, and before we get back to the show... Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, if you appreciate how NPR has kept you informed in this bonkers year, please support the show and NPR by giving to your local station. To give, go to donate.npr.org Sam. That's donate.npr.org Sam. All right, back to the show.
0: About a year ago, a teaser trailer came out for an upcoming Netflix show. And it got people really excited, including myself. That show finally dropped on Netflix last week.
2: When I think about being on stage, and you on the bass, and Suzette on the drums, nothing else matters.
0: This show is called Selena, Selena. the series. It is all about the life of singer Selena Quintanilla Perez, before her murder in 1995, when she was only 23. Right at the height of her fame. And a lot of people got to know Selena when Jennifer Lopez played her in a movie in 1997. So this new Selena show, not everyone is happy about it.
2: Do we really need another Selena thing? Like, or
0: That is Alex Zaragoza. She's a senior staff writer covering culture for Vice. And she wrote about that new series. Alex says she's a fan of Selena, but she is still critical of the show. Because Selena's image in that show and in a bunch of other places, it is exploited.
2: Same goes with like Frida Kahlo. We have our icons that they use over and over and over again. Yeah? It's sacrilegious to in any way
0: (laughs) criticize
2: (laughs) anything directed, even in the general area that is Selena, right? Because it's...
0: Alex knew she she might get some flack for her opinion, but she was ready for it, and she says her beef isn't just with this one Selena series on Netflix. It's bigger than that.
2: Here's my laundry list of issues... (laughs) It starts from small things, just like, I mean, the wigs are tragic. I I think I made a joke. Like, they looked like they fell off Sheila E.'s tour bus and got run over. Um, they're just bad. There's I love a, bad a
0: good w-. Sheila E. reference. You My know what?
2: I, I'm, I was born in the 80s. I knew Sheila E. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> I All right, to so
0: bad costuming, bad wigs.
2: It had, like, an overall very lifetime movie feel. So you're mm. watching it, and you're like, there's no real – tension here. They portray mm. Selena as this very meek, very small girl. like.
0: But she wasn't.
2: You know, listen, you watch any clip of Selena on stage and that woman is a powerhouse. This is a woman who's yes. got curves, who's on stage and commands the audience. Oh! Uh- she knows how to work the room from you know being you know sweet girl next door and very charismatic to like a total diva to like letting you know what's up like she was yeah. she was incredible in every single yeah. way and when you think about her at that at the age she commanded this level of confidence she i mean she died before she yeah. reached 24 mm-hmm. That just doesn't come across on this series. Like, first you you cast somebody. This is, you know, no disrespect to Christian Serratos who plays her, but, you know, she's a much smaller person.
0: Well, this is what you wrote that I found really interesting, that the casting of Selena for this show and casting of her before has kind of almost anglicized her, taken away some of her curves, taken away... Her darker skin even.
2: Right. And the quote that I attributed there is to like Mala Munoz because she really brought this to light too when she was, and this was just based on the trailer. But yeah, like the, the sort of, you know, slimming down of her features, making her more Eurocentric. Has been mm. happening. I mean, it started sort of with Jennifer Lopez, you know, who's a little lighter skin, a little easier. On the, uh, and of course, this is Hollywood. Hollywood always wants to do like the hotter version of whoever, right? I'm or sure, or just
0: like the lightest possible the version lightest of any skin. person. Of yeah, color. <laughs>
2: they are, they will run your skin through the wash and extra bleach it if they have to, right? Like, and they feel like they they need to for some reason. If, if it, uh-huh. and so you get to the point where, um, I said like. I, often in watching Christian, it felt like I was watching the Jennifer Lopez playing Salida story, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. We yeah, want to see yeah. her
2: features who's, you know, this is a mestiza woman of, you know, she's a Mexican indigenous descent, you know. We want to see yeah. her we want to see There's that color celebrated. Up in there. Get some get yes. some melanin in there. <laughs> yes. You know?
0: You go on in your essay to say this isn't just about one show. -mm. That when it comes to the ways Latinos are portrayed in TV and movies, these same types of stories are allowed to be told. What are the same types of stories?
2: I mean, this is sort of old tread territory, right? Uh, In terms of Latinx representation on screen. We are typically, you know, tragic figures. You know, it's like Mm. the tragic immigration story or immigrant story. Uh, We are. Mm-hmm. Criminals were gangbangers, were cartel drug lords, whatever. Were mm-hmm. housekeepers were always in service positions, or were these like sexy Latin lover types? You know, you think of like mm-hmm. Sofia Vergata. Like they, they also love to do a lot of like the tacky telenovela thing because it's like funny mm-hmm. and it's tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of that. Ooh, it's
0: loud and dramatic. Oh. They Not slap each other in the face. We, we oh out my here, God. we're
2: rolling our tongues, we're throwing chanclas, <laughs> we're slapping our husbands. That's what we do. <laughs> we're just mad all the time. I mean, if you watch any reality TV show, like anytime the like Latinx woman or man comes on screen, without fail, Spanish Guitars. Ooh, sexy Spanish guitars. Let me tell you (laughs)
0: something. Listen, Alex, sometimes when NPR will do a story about Latino issues, they'll hit that same kind of music. And I'm like, y'all, we can't do that. We can't do
2: it. And, you know, we notice that. We notice that. Oh, yeah. It's just like, (laughs) come on, man.
0: It's like, come on, y'all. It's 2020. (laughs) You know, speaking of it being 2020. It is 2020, a year of racial reckoning. We've been having these conversations about representation for years now. And yet, these stereotypes about Latinos in media still exist. And one of the problems is like, there's still this industry, the Hollywood ecosystem. It's controlled by mostly white TV and movie executives. And so even if you want to make Latino content, you have to make it palatable to them first. Right. You know, and so besides totally getting rid of the current leadership and getting some new folks in there, which these studios haven't done yet, how do you overcome that problem? The fact that there's just white gatekeepers for brown content still.
2: You know, if I knew I'd be the head of Paramount Pictures right now, maybe, (laughs) I'd be like, please speak to my assistants. I do not have time for NPR today. I joke, I joke. But, um, you know, I think there is, it's a top down thing because it's not just hiring more Latinos and hiring more Latinos of different backgrounds, because as you and I very much know, hiring more people doesn't necessarily Mm. change the structure. There you go. And your yeah. skin folk ain't always your kin folk, as Whoop, we also know. Say it again. <laughs> yes. I, I'm just saying. You know, this requires also, you know, Latinx people that are in Hollywood to address their own biases, to address their own blind spots, to address how they may be perpetuating these stereotypes by just being thirsty and wanting to get things sold.
0: Mm. You know, elsewhere in the show, I talked with another Alex about how the pandemic is totally changing entertainment this year. And like the old gatekeepers of Hollywood just have less power as the internet and TikTok and the youths and the memes are winning. And when I think about the reception of this Selena series on Netflix, that kind of maybe proves the point. Like maybe these big power players aren't gonna be leading the charge of the new content that actually appeals to these communities.
2: Right, but you know, to that I ca- I, I absolutely agree. But I, to that I also counter that they don't care; they want mo- it's about mm. money. It's like they don't <laughs> care because at the end of this, mm. so this Selena, the series, is a monster hit. It's in the top ten of really? on Netflix. It's been a huge oh, hit. Wow. There are people that love it, and fair play. If you love it, you go ahead. That doesn't mean it's it doesn't deserve to have you know very fair critiques lobbed at it like love it if you yeah. love it hate it if you hate it but at the end of it like studios care for a hit they don't necessarily care for something that is doing a service to to the people
0: yeah so then on an up note what's your favorite selena song
2: oh okay it it really depends on my mood If I'm, you know, if some somebody got me real pissed off, Si Una Vez is going to be the song that I bump because I'm like talking straight (laughs) to that person. But when I'm in my feelings and I just want to like sing it out, No Me Queda Mas, every time.
0: Thanks again to Alex Zaragoza. She is a senior staff writer covering culture for Vice. That new series all about Selena, it is on Netflix right now. It's called Selena, the series. Watch it for yourself and uh, see what you think. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
1: Hey, Sam. This is Akira from San Antonio, Texas and the best thing that happened to me this week is that I passed my final certification exam which now qualifies me to be an ESL certified elementary school
2: teacher for the great state of Texas. Hey Sam, this is Kim from Bellevue, Washington. The best thing that happened to me was on my 50th birthday. I largely boycotted celebrating until I can do so properly but my mom, who lives about a half an hour away, stopped by to wish me a happy birthday. We talked outside, masked and distanced for about 30 minutes. When she went to leave, she said, I want to give you a hug. We decided that if we looked away from each other and kept our masks on, a hug was reasonably low risk. Best birthday present ever. Hi Sam, the best part of my week is that I've been cancer free for a year and I was able to go give blood again. Hi Sam, this is Amber from Seattle, Washington. And the best thing that happened to me this week was getting the results of my latest PET scan, which showed no evidence of metabolically active cancer and no new metastases, which when you're stage four is the best news you can ever, ever hope for. And I'm so grateful to all my doctors, just medicine, everything, And I am never going to take my health for granted again. So thank you for listening to me. And thank you for all that you do. Have a great day. Bye.
1: Anyway, thanks for the show. And thank you for doing what you do.
2: Thanks for your show. And thanks for letting us share. Have a great day.
0: Ah, that was a great one this week. Two stories of cancer-free listeners. We love to hear it. Thanks to all those listeners you heard right there. Amber, Bruce, Kim, and Akira. Listeners, don't forget, you can be a part of this segment every week. Just record yourself sharing the best part of your week and send that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week It's Been a Minute was produced by Danae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan, and I want to pause right now to say Star, thanks for everything. This is Star's last week with It's Been a Minute, and we are very sad to see her go. Star is many things. Good at all things journalism, pretty funny, great with the memes, a good illustrator, and just nice to be around. We're excited to see what Star does next. We'll be watching and listening. All the best, Star. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson, and our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. Listeners, till next time, stay safe, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.